Chapter 2 Mountain Boy When Agnes arrived at Argy's farm in the high country of North Carolina for the first time, she had to admit the place did seem to exist as its own world. Seeing the clouds rolling up the mountain peaks, the valley shrouded in ocean-thick fog, was like dozing off and slipping into a dream. Only she wasn't dreaming for long. The roads were far too bumpy for that. She soon found herself sitting, or bouncing, really, in the passenger seat of Argy's Pontiac as the vehicle lurched and rattled, the two of them careening up and down roads that had been carved haphazardly through the mountains. Now that she'd seen the farm, he wanted to give her a tour of the rest of the county, dangerous cliffsides and all. Once or twice the vehicle tilted so severely on an uneven spot, Agnes thought they'd go rolling on down the mountain. R.G., though, was the picture of relaxation as he drove, casually pointing out landmarks through the valley, providing her with a brief overview of the area's history, as if they weren't taunting death with every bend in the road. For generations, he told her, Watauga County and the surrounding area had been one of the so-called lost provinces of North Carolina, because it had been impossible to reach by trains or roads. Separated from the rest of the state by the eastern continental divide, those mountainous ridges that rise up 3,000 feet and, like a knife blade, slice the running rainwater in two directions, the joke was that the only way to get to Watauga was to be born here. Anyone else would have had to hike on foot, the same way the early explorers had done. But even now, Agnes found the roads weren't much, just gravel and dirt and loose rocks that rolled precariously down the slopes. Her ankles crossed on top of the rumbling car floor mats. She held her breath as they whipped around yet another cliffside. It was impossible not to flinch every time. Just when she was about to start worrying, they crested the hill in Argy's Pontiac, and a full panorama of the mountains rose into view before them. Spread over the horizon, the rounded mountain peaks appeared to dive out of the clouds like so many humped-back whales, frozen in time before they splashed back down again into the misty froth. The view was colossal, biblical. It was as if she and R.G. were seated inside a small boat, surrounded by the most massive ocean waves God could form, bobbing at the highest point on the skyline. For a moment, Agnes was speechless. She'd never experienced anything quite like it. Over the coming months, as winter began to thaw and the sound of bird song and dripping tree canopies filled the valley, Agnes made multiple trips back to the farm with R.G., occasionally for practical reasons, but mostly just to get away for a day. And it really did feel away. Away from the rest of the world, away from the chaos of newspaper headlines and radio broadcasts about the war overseas, away from reports of firebombs and charred European cities, away from the draft and more American boys being enlisted in the armed forces. R.G.'s farm was in the town of Vilas, Although, maybe town wasn't exactly the right word for it, at least not compared to Agnes's hometown. Vilas had nothing more than a tiny post office to mark its spot on the local maps. Otherwise, it was just a collection of open fields and hills, tree-bordered graveyards and quiet streams, hidden ponds and animal burrows, designated a town not so much by signs or fencing, but rather by the inherited knowledge of the families that had always lived here. All around Watauga were other small communities of that ilk, Sugar Grove, Zionville, Deep Gap, Bamboo, Matney, Fosco, Shoals Mills, Meat Camp, Aho. The names called to mind old tribes, each with its own passed down history. As for the story behind the county's name, Watauga, Agnes learned that was a mystery. Some claimed it was a Cherokee word for beautiful flowing waters, 
but you'd be hard-pressed to find any real Cherokee who'd tell you that was so. Others thought it referred to the great warrior tribe of Watauga Indians, although no such tribe was ever recorded to have existed. Still others thought it came from the language of a long-lost native people and that it meant, simply, the land beyond. Agnes could have gone around the county knocking on doors and asking for the story, and no doubt each family would have had their own sure answer behind the name's origin, what their granddaddy or grandma had told them. It could mean river of plenty, or whispering waters, or the land in the clouds, and on and on. But at the end of the day, the evidence for any of those explanations was as foggy as the mountain air itself. What was known for sure was that the first documented white men to appear in Watauga had been Moravian missionaries, who arrived from Pennsylvania in 1752, seeking a new spot for a settlement. The legendary pioneer Daniel Boone, after whom the county's biggest town was later named, traveled through the area on hunting trips beginning about 17 years later in 1769. More weary settlers arrived in the coming decades. English, Germans, Scots, Irish. Arrowheads found in the soil and native artwork the early settlers dug up from the ground proved that Cherokees had once dominated this land. But they were ghosts now, only their bones remaining deep beneath the loam. The cause of their disappearance? Yet another local mystery. More than 160 years after the first white man arrived in Watauga, R.G. was born on a farm in the small town of Valley Cruces at the banks of the Watauga River. He was the second youngest of seven children. His father, Ed Shipley, was a cattleman, renowned amongst his peers for having brought the first registered Hereford bulls into the state of North Carolina a few decades earlier. R.G.'s mother, Minnie Lee Shipley, was a tough but kind-hearted Methodist who managed the farm while her husband was away on those long cattle drives, which she did while also keeping R.G. and his six siblings fed and looked after. Because his father was gone so often, and because his mother was always so busy, R.G. spent most of his childhood afternoons riding his pony across the valley to the farm of his father's brother, Houston Shipley. Uncle Hughes, as R.G. called him, was in the cattle business too, and he knew more about animals than anyone R.G. had ever met. Houston didn't have children of his own, but in his nephew he'd found a willing apprentice. Although from the moment he could talk, R.G. swore he'd never be a cattleman himself. Instead, he wanted to be a veterinarian. He told his uncle he would open an office in the valley one day, just down the way from the farm, where he would spend his life healing sick and injured animals, not raising them for slaughter. Uncle Hughes told him that was a fine idea. My uncle was a progressive fellow, R.G. told Agnes many years later. He had taken some special interest in me, for some reason. But to become a skilled vet, R.G. had a lot to learn. So Houston began schooling his nephew in the fine art of animal psychology. First, he taught R.G. how to read the animals, what attributes to look for, the angle of the neck, the thickness of the hindquarters, the shape of the face. Words like phenotype and confirmation flowed off his uncle's tongue like magical spells. Houston would walk in slow circles around the cattle, reading their personalities through the smallest of gestures. The turn of one's head told him, this one is aggressively protective of her calf, so best be careful around her. The nudge of another's rear end as it munched on the grass translated to, this one is relaxed, docile enough to pet, if you like. Houston knew from the jostling of the legs which of his calves were dominant and which were submissive, which were guarded and which were outgoing, and he seemed to do all this without even thinking, as natural as blinking or breathing as natural as the fog in the valley. More than anything, R.G. wanted to be able to see like that one day. The way Agnes heard him tell it all those years later, R.G.'s childhood was cleaved in two. There was before, and then there was after. 
All that came before was like something out of a children's book. Pony rides up the mountains, lessons with his uncle in the pasture, chasing after baby calves, sunsets painting warm golden light over the mountains. Everything that came after, well, that's when R.G. usually got quiet. He was 11 years old when his family lost the farm. One foggy morning, his father led him outside, lifted R.G. up from under his armpits, and dropped him down in the back of a wagon piled with crates. His siblings crawled in the wagon around him and sat crammed together with their arms wrapped around their knees. And without even a few words of explanation, his family rode out of Watauga for good. R.G. didn't even know what was happening as he watched the mountains disappear behind them. Even two decades later, when Agnes asked him about it, R.G. still didn't give too many details. My father was short-sighted, was about all he would say. A bad investment, that was the short version of the story. Some cattlemen friends had asked R.G.'s father to co-sign a loan so they could start their own cattle operation, but Ed Shipley hadn't done his due diligence, and when his friend's business failed, the bank came to Ed for the money. It didn't take long for the score to be settled. As R.G.'s family rode off in silence, strangers drove up to the farmhouse, like an invasive species, and began selling it off limb by limb. It was a pretty sad story there for a while, R.G. told Agnes. After losing the farm, the Shipleys crossed the border from North Carolina into Virginia, where they found a place to stop on the fringes of coal country, a town called Wallace. They moved into a log house with one floor. At night, the walls of the house let out high-pitched shrieks as the wind slid through the gaps in the logs. The family was crammed together over cold, dusty floorboards. They scraped and pinched pennies to get by. R.G. spent his teenage years waking before dawn to deliver coal in a horse-drawn wagon. Most of his siblings took off to pursue new lives on their own. His mother fell silent and kept her eyes on the floorboards. As for R.G.'s father, Ed Shipley had gone from driving great migrations of cattle across the Shenandoah Valley to delivering milk in a rickety old Ford truck to a bottling plant across town. Years went by, and R.G. grew accustomed to the coal gray skies and buzz-cut hills. He did well in school, played catcher on the baseball team, his mitt stained black from the coal dust that seemed to permanently coat his hands. Every year, there were fewer boys in his class. They all dropped out to work. But R.G. kept his early morning delivery job and made sure to get to school on time, while also helping his father raise dairy cows when class let out. He'd never given up on his childhood dream of returning to Watauga one day to run his own veterinary practice. And at least once a summer, with his father's permission, he hitchhiked his way back down into North Carolina to spend a few weeks on his Uncle Houston's farm. Those summer visits were almost painfully beautiful. After being starved of color for so long, the lush green of the mountains and the wide expanse of ocean blue sky were delicious. With Houston, he learned something new each day. They worked until their bodies ached. Then, in rocking chairs side by side, the two would sip sweet tea out on the porch as the evening rolled in, marinating the mountains in that golden Carolina sunset. It was the only place R.G. ever felt he could fully breathe, fully exhale, when he said goodbye to his uncle at the end of each summer, the journey back to Virginia was always disorienting, as if someone had just shaken him awake from a dream. By the time R.G. graduated from high school, he was one of just three boys remaining in his class. Through a gritty mixture of luck and resolve, he wound up getting accepted to attend the prestigious Virginia Polytechnic Institute in Blacksburg, Virginia, where he intended to study veterinary science. After borrowing money from a local doctor for a bus ticket, he arrived with nothing more than a small bag and nowhere to stay. Right away, he felt out of place. 
Never mind that he probably smelled like coal dust and the rank perfume of his horse-drawn wagon. His clothes were patched and threadbare, his shoes barely holding together. While all around him, wealthy-looking young men wearing crisp military uniforms went marching by, their polished buckles glinting in the mist. VPI was a school that functioned mainly as a prep academy for those looking to enter the armed forces. RG had been given permission to attend as a day student, meaning he was excused from the formations and drills. His job was to work in the school's dairy department, milking test cows by hand four times a day and keeping records. He would make sure the gleaming boys had milk to drink in the cafeteria. That was his role in the grand American experiment. But he still needed a place to sleep, and at the last minute he managed to find a room in an old widow's boarding house for $30 a month, breakfast and dinner included, which was lucky considering he didn't have any money left over for food. RG decided that was fine by him. He could get by without lunch for a year. Soon, he wouldn't be the only one with an empty stomach. Just a few weeks after he arrived on campus, the American stock market collapsed, and newspapers reported as businesses and factories slowed down production and began firing workers nationwide. Confusing terms like brokerage offices and margin traders and valuation tables floated out of the radio, while stories began to spread of people forced to huddle in lines down city blocks just to get a loaf of bread or some watery soup. RG felt lucky just to have any job at all, but his schedule was arguably even more militaristic than those of the uniformed cadets on campus. He could sleep in as late as 5 a.m. each morning, but the moment he opened his eyes, he would have to scramble to get ready. He would get dressed, then begin the long process of putting his shoes together. Not putting his shoes on, no, putting them together. The pair had finally given out on him a few weeks earlier, both shoes splitting apart at the soles over the course of a few days, and since he couldn't afford replacements, he started each day by wrapping binder twine around them over and over to keep them from falling off his feet, then tying a big ugly knot at the top, like a bow on the world's worst Christmas present. Once he'd gotten dressed in the morning with his shoes snug on his feet, RG would scarf down some breakfast and race off to the dairy barn to milk the school's test cows. Although the dairy department had a milking machine on campus, they wanted all the test cows to be milked by hand for some bureaucratic reason or another. Once that was done, RG would run to class, and immediately afterward, he had to rush right back to the barn for the cow's next milking session. Then class again, cows again, class, cows, no lunch, and the rest of the day would be spent hunched over textbooks in the library, his stomach growling, before eating a quick dinner of bread and soup back at the boarding house, undoing his shoes, and collapsing into bed at night, his hands clenching at invisible cow udders in his sleep. Uncle Houston told him not to get discouraged. In letters that arrived every few days at RG's boarding house, Houston wrote about the farm back home and the latest news from the valley, all the people migrating out of the mountains and into the nearest cities to find work. Everyone was going through tough times. He told RG he was proud of him for making a life for himself. RG and his uncle were always writing back and forth. Their letters were usually about nothing in particular a catalog of random news, livestock tidbits, and comments about theology that likely would have intrigued no one but them. But one night in early autumn, when R.G. returned dog-tired to the boarding house, he opened Houston's latest letter and was greeted by some unexpected news. An engagement announcement. A beautiful Tennessee gal, Houston wrote. It was quite unexpected, he admitted, especially for him, but he told R.G. there were no two ways about it. It was true love. After all these years, Houston had finally found the one. When Agnes heard this story years later, she was confused. Hadn't R.G. said his uncle Houston had never married? 
He was getting married, Argy explained. In fact, wedding invitations were mailed out that very week after Argy received Houston's letter. But that made it all even worse, Argy told Agnes. Because just a few weeks later, a sudden cold front swept over the mountains, the temperature falling six degrees below zero, freezing the valley and forcing Houston out into the wilderness to chop more firewood, working like a man possessed as he loaded a wagon high with logs, rushing back to the brick house to keep the fire going in the hearth, to keep the house warm at all costs. But it was no use. He was getting married, Archie told Agnes, and his bride-to-be developed pneumonia and died. Houston was so taken after that, he wrote to Archie saying he knew he would never marry thereafter for the rest of his life. Just that story by itself would have been sad enough to Agnes had it ended there. Because invitations had been mailed out, Archie's uncle had been obligated to take the time to write everyone explaining why the wedding had to be called off. To Agnes, the thought of that poor man having to sit down and write out his grief over and over again was enough to break her heart. But the story did not end there. On the night of December 18, 1929, just when the campus of VPI was getting ready to clear out for the Christmas holiday, Archie returned to his boarding house to find a telegram from his father, which informed him, in just a few short sentences, that Houston was dead. Funeral in two days, Archie's father wrote. Come to Vilas. Archie woke early the next morning, packed his bag in a daze, and hiked out to the main roadway off campus. Winter had arrived aggressively that year. Snow clung to his coat, and biting wind mangled his collar as he hiked along, shivering, turning to raise an arm to the occasional passing motorist. He had to hitchhike in the cold all the way back to Watauga for the funeral, a distance of 150 miles. Each time he got picked up, he did his best to act thankful and cheery. But the truth was, he was numb. The whole journey was a blur. No matter whether he was sitting in the passenger seat of a stranger's car or hiking along in the slush, Argy just couldn't wrap his mind around it. His uncle had been so healthy and vigorous the last he'd seen him, even with the cold of the season. How could a man like that just slip away? A broken heart, Argy decided. That was the only possible explanation. But that was not true. It was just the only explanation he wanted to consider. Snow gusts swirled and kept on swirling as he traveled farther south. It was the worst blizzard in years. The Mountain newspaper, the Watauga Democrat, would later proclaim the streets were practically deserted throughout the day, and with the heavy snowfall and accompanying wind, those who took their motors from their garages were soon baffled by skidding tires and piercing cold. Despite a good number of motorists taking pity on him and stopping to pick him up, R.G. was the last in his family to arrive back in Watauga, so he was also the last to learn what had been discovered in Houston's will. His family had all gathered inside Houston's brick house. R.G. was practically standing in the doorway, his hair frosted white and his cheeks red and raw, when they told him. In his will, Houston had decided to leave everything. The barn, the meat house, the ice house, the spring house, the Herefords, all 122 acres of wheat fields, pasture, and hills, and the very brick house in which the whole family was now standing. To my nephew, Robert Gray Shipley. R.G. was 17 years old. Something inside R.G. changed after his uncle died, just as the whole country seemed to have changed in some deep-down, permanent way. 1930. A new year. A new decade. Photographs of empty factories soon filled the front pages of newspapers. 
Newsreel clips showed men nailing closed signs on the doors of shops, no help wanted posters glued to office windows. In the 1920s, the great American word was prosperity, one newsreel narrator declared. Now the 30s had begun, and there was a new word, depression. As the bewildered nation staggered into a new decade, R.G. dealt with his own despair by working, working constantly. If before Houston's death his daily schedule had been exhaustive, now it bordered on insanity. At 17 years old, he was stubborn enough to believe he could still finish up college at VPI and one day become a veterinarian, while also running a farm 150 miles away. Later, when she heard this story, Agnes asked him how he'd even managed to get back and forth between school and the farm so often. Did he take the bus? The train? No, no, I bummed, R.G. said. I had this little satchel that had a Virginia Tech sticker on it, and you could get a ride. There was no problem. I could travel quicker by bumming than I could on the train or the bus or any other way, he added. And he laughed at that, as if this part of his life was a comedy and not a sad spell of loneliness. Besides, he said, bumming was the only way to travel for free. I didn't have the money in the first place, he told her. There were plenty of Houston's old farm workers who lived on the land, who had watched R.G. grow up, and who now did all they could to help him keep the place running. But R.G.'s life in the early 1930s remained one of constant movement, sending telegrams to the farm workers for the latest updates, hitchhiking back and forth between VPI's campus and Watauga every few days, reading class textbooks while in the seats of strangers' automobiles, then drawing up breeding and crop schedules for the farm while sitting exhausted in class. He rarely slept. There was no time for friends, no time for late nights or going out on the town. That wasn't a major part of my life, R.G. later said. I didn't get to go to any of the football games. I didn't go to any of the formal dances. I didn't have the money or the time. Why, I didn't have a spare minute hardly to speak. When Agnes asked him if he'd had any fun at all during his college, R.G. admitted, Well, I would go to a movie maybe once every two or three months or something. As if that were some wild, guilty extravagance. Otherwise, the only time he spent outside of the classroom or working on the farm were the occasional weekends he went on trips with the school's dairy judging team, which traveled all over the country for competitions. R.G. had joined the team on a whim, figuring it might be a good chance to hone his eye for animals. His first year, at the season-end contest in St. Louis, R.G. won second place in the nation. Had she known him back in those days, Agnes would have told him his obsessiveness about everything he did was arguably unhealthy but R.G. had managed to convince himself he was fine. There was nothing wrong with not sleeping, he told himself. Nothing wrong with working 18-hour days, seven days a week. Nothing wrong with isolating himself from other people. By graduation, R.G. had completed enough classes to earn himself three degrees, one in dairy science, one in animal husbandry, and one in agricultural education, although the school administrators later called him into a back office and informed him that he would only be allowed to accept one degree, because, they said, handing out three diplomas to one student wouldn't fit very well with the image of a school as academically rigorous as VPI, now would it? Judging by his tone as he told that story years later, Agnes could tell Argy was still a little mad about that. Upon graduation, he planned to enroll straight away in a doctoral program to become a veterinarian. But with the depression still choking his finances, he couldn't afford tuition. There wasn't any extra money to pay for anything else, he said. Finding a job was no easy task either. Employment was so hard to come by, it was so scarce, he said. But they were employing teachers some. 
I didn't have any other opportunities. He accepted a year-long teaching position at the Patterson School in Lenore, North Carolina, instructing boys in an old schoolhouse heated by a wood stove through winter. And when that gig was up, he heard another temporary teaching position had just become available at the high school in Boone, just down the road from his farm in Vilas. The present teacher was wanting to retire, R.G. later said. They asked me if I would take the job, and I told them, no, that I planned to go back to school and study veterinary medicine in September. But if they wanted me to, I would fill out for the rest of the year for them. He couldn't say, later on, whether he'd known how difficult it would be for him to leave once he moved back home for good. As a child, R.G. had gotten to know the mountains on long pony rides, exploring the ancient wilderness, the cold bubbling creeks and wide open cliffsides, back when summer lasted a thousand years. Now that he'd returned to Watauga as a young man in his early 20s to live full time, he got to know his home again in the evening and early morning hours, driving his Pontiac up and down the hills, visiting families all over the valley. Technically, these visits weren't a part of his job at all. As the new vocational agriculture teacher at the high school, and a self-avowed temporary one at that, R.G.'s only responsibility was to guide his students. But whenever folks around Watauga had trouble on their farms, hogs dropping dead, soil gone barren, a sheep going through tough labor, he couldn't help but offer up his expertise. R.G. would then navigate the hills and arrive on their doorstep in coat and tie, bag of tools in hand, like a country doctor making house calls. I felt like it was my responsibility if I could, he later told Agnes. Soon, the name Robert Gray Shipley became a running topic of conversation among the farmers who'd gather inside Mass General Store while collecting their mail. And when R.G. stopped in to stock up on supplies, they all went silent as he passed by the potbelly stove. It was rumored the young Mr. Shipley knew more about animal science, soil chemistry, dairy science, and agriculture than just about anyone else in the state. Then came the stories that appeared on the front page of the Watauga Democrat that summer, after R.G.'s first year of teaching was up. As it happened, instead of getting ready to leave to study veterinary medicine as he'd originally planned, R.G. decided to do the most logical alternative, organize a 4,000-mile cross-country road trip for his entire class of students, more than 20 high school boys altogether. News of the so-called Southwestern tour was so unusual, so fantastical, that the Watauga Democrat plotted their journey for the whole county to follow. It was the height of the Great Depression, and people needed something hopeful in their lives a common cause to rally behind. A distraction. They expect to leave Monday, June 1st, the paper told its readers on the front page of the May 28, 1936 edition, and go down through the Tennessee Valley and cross the Mississippi River at New Orleans, thence to Old Mexico and return to the Centennial Exposition at Dallas. On the return trip, the group will go through Oklahoma, Kansas, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Virginia. When the boys finished their trip weeks later, they returned to the mountains in the truck bed of a 38 Chevy with stories right out of a boy's paperback adventure novel. Canoe rides down the mighty Mississippi, dust bowl towns abandoned like lost ruins, jazzy nights in New Orleans, shrimp boat excursions on the Gulf. Most of these boys had never even stepped foot over the county line of Watauga before, and now they weaved tales of trains wailing through the long prairie nights of the Midwest. They'd wandered through hazy markets on the Mexican border, and they dipped canoe oars into the placid waters of the Ohio River. They'd even met the president himself, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, while he was at a campaign stop at that summer's Centennial World's Fair in Dallas, Texas. Wearing a snow-white suit, the president had been seated up in the back of an open-air limousine, 
which happened to crawl to a stop at the street corner right beside the group of mountain boys. None of them had even known the president was in town. They would have reached out to shake his hand had they not been so stunned. Roosevelt just smiled and waved at them, his limo then carrying him forward in the summer haze. The southwestern trip turned R.G. into a household name across the county, but he made even bigger headlines the following autumn, soon after his 24th birthday, when he helped bring light to the mountains. That September, around the same time he began his second year at the high school, the Rural Electrical Administration in Washington, D.C. sent representatives down to Watauga to see about setting up electrical infrastructure in the valley. It was one of Roosevelt's New Deal initiatives. But at those first community meetings, the D.C. folks didn't exactly receive a warm welcome. What with how wary mountain folks could be of outsiders, especially outsiders who proposed stabbing strange wooden poles into their land and stringing dangerous wires inside their homes where their children slept, it was a tough sell. But R.G. had read the reports, had attended all the meetings, and had listened closely. So he took it upon himself to go around the county, house by house, and personally vouch for the importance of the electrification project, while also drawing out detailed maps for where the transmission lines should be installed to most benefit the residents. His efforts caught the attention of North Carolina Congressman Bob Doughton, the chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, who, just a year prior, had stood on the right-hand side of President Roosevelt during the signing of the Social Security Act, and who now appeared at the Brick House in Vilas to personally congratulate R.G. for his efforts. The local civil engineer, Mr. Richard Olson, also thanked R.G. on the front page of the paper for having, quote, laid aside usual duties and gone into the field to secure the detailed information required. The type of cooperation shown, Olson added, is of the most unselfish and valuable kind. R.G. continued to teach for another three years in Watauga County, while spending his summer breaks completing a master's degree piecemeal. He would have preferred earning his doctorate to become a veterinarian, but the programs were not nearly as flexible, and he figured a master's degree was as good a first step as any. By the time R.G. finally left his job at the high school, four years later than he'd originally planned, Watauga County was transformed. By day, it looked just about the same. Observant travelers passing through might have spotted the new electrical lines snaking through the hills, but for the most part they blended in with the trees. It was only when night fell that the heavy shroud of darkness, once so formidable, was softly bombarded all over by the nocturnal emergence of light, like so many moons blooming at once. 300 miles of electrical lines had been installed, servicing 2,400 homes. Through the black fog of evening, one could see the glow of illuminated windows, all over the valley, electrified homes hummed past nightfall. Silhouettes passed by in the windows now. Women cooking beans and lard in iron pans. Grandmas reading to children in wooden chairs. Men smoking pipes of burly tobacco. Girls and boys shuffling in play over the floorboards. And years later, on warm spring nights in 1941, R.G. and Agnes would be able to dance in the illuminated living room of his brick house the radio playing Frank Sinatra as the crickets sang along through the valley. Only Agnes ever saw him dance. What she loved most of all were those cool spring evenings, listening to the radio with him on the farm, music filling the once lonely rooms of the brick house. Their favorite radio program was The Hit Parade, which aired all over the country, showcasing live performances of the top hits from the most popular musicians of the day. That was how Agnes and R.G. first heard the song, what soon became their song, Night and Day, sung by Frank Sinatra. Night and day, 
you are the one. Only you, neath the moon, or under the stars. Whenever it came on at the brick house that spring, they'd sway back and forth between the chairs over the old rug in the living room. R.G.'s muddy boots sat by the door, so he danced in his socks, while the radio crackled like logs in a fireplace. Whether near to me or far, no matter, darling, where you are, I think of you day and night, night and day. And this man of hers, who could dance to a sweet song on the radio, would then have to slide his boots back on and head out to feed the cattle and dump the slop for the hogs. Agnes never minded that part of him. The truth was, she liked it. She'd been back to the farm enough times that she'd begun to feel at home out here in the mountains, although she still hadn't learned to wear more suitable shoes. That was a lesson she simply refused to learn. Instead, she'd become quite skillful at walking over any farm terrain in her stylish shoes, taking care to clean them off properly whenever she stepped back inside. Besides, there was work for her to get done. While R.G. was out tending to the farm, she did her best to fix up the house. Beyond nailing in rafters on the ceiling or prying out old floorboards, there were plenty of small touches that did wonders. A well-placed vase of flowers could transform a room. A rug here, some curtains there, a good polishing of the banisters to give the good old wood some of its original shine back. She never stayed the night, of course. That wouldn't have been proper. But their visits did tend to stretch on a bit longer as the weather warmed. Usually on these starlit nights, while R.G. was out feeding the cattle before they drove back to Virginia, she would switch on the radio in the living room and let the sound float into the kitchen as she fixed them up something quick and easy for dinner. By this late in the day, the hit parade broadcast would be replaced by news about the fighting overseas. The countless deaths, the cities burned. Talk of the war had been dominating conversations for months. Out here in the mountains, at least, it was easier to put out of mind. As the radio played, Agnes would move about the kitchen without thinking, no longer having to open random cupboards and search around in drawers to find what she needed to get a meal together. She already knew the homes for his various pots, pans, and ingredients, even if R.G. had no clue most of the time. Honestly, the man seemed utterly incapable of feeding himself. How did you manage to get this far in life without starving to death? She had asked him a few weeks earlier, and he had just shrugged and grinned as she'd pried a pan loose from a chaotic jumble of random items in the cabinet. What made it so odd was that, in many ways, R.G. was somewhat of a genius. It had come as a gradual shock when she'd realized just how formidably his mind worked what with how aloof he could act sometimes. R.G.'s power of recall alone was extraordinary. Any town he had ever visited, even if he'd only driven through it once, years ago, he could sit down on the spot and draw an accurate map of its layout, right down to the locations of shops, banks, restaurants, light posts, and that gnarled curve of the tree trunk where he'd taken a left-hand turn. Phone numbers and addresses, too, might as well have been carved into stone in his head, the way he could rattle them off so easily. The smallest of details about a person he'd met, a newspaper article he'd read a few months back, uh, the radio program he'd heard three Christmases ago, it was all stored permanently in his mind. But nothing compared to how deeply he understood his animals. Even from a distance, R.G. could distinguish between the cattle by seemingly invisible differences in their silhouettes. He could read sickness in an animal by a sluggish blink of its eyes, could sense unease through the small furrow of one's ears. It was astounding. And this same man, this genius, couldn't even fry up a couple of eggs to save his life. Over the last few months, Agnes had gotten to see him interact with other people who lived in the mountains, 
and it was funny how different he was to them. Out there in the community, in his coat and tie, he was always Mr. Shipley, the respected teacher, landowner, and community advocate, a county agent with a master's degree worth of knowledge who might soon earn a doctoral degree to become a celebrated veterinarian. But here in the brick house, alone with her, he was always Bob. That's what she called him, at least. Early on, he had begun calling her by a sweet pet name, Sadie, derived from the Hebrew word for princess, which he'd found by parsing through the Old Testament and coming upon what he thought was a particularly fitting passage to describe her beauty. And in response to that researched show of admiration, she'd stuck with Bob. Just that. Bob. Of all the other possible iterations of his name, Robert, Robert Gray, R.G., Mr. Shipley, she thought Bob suited him best. That was the man he was to her. The window was open now, a cool evening breeze wafting into the kitchen. May of 1941 had arrived in the mountains a week earlier, and with it came the smell of freshly plowed soil. The breeze and the damp fragrance swirled with the voices of the radio broadcasters in the kitchen as Agnes stood over the counter, slicing some tomatoes over an old wooden cutting board. They had to get back out on the road soon. After cutting the tomatoes, she arranged the slices atop some bread, with cheese and country ham, then rinsed the knife under the faucet. Meanwhile, the radio broadcasters were discussing the odds of the USA entering the war. After the passage of the Lend-Lease Act, which had formally authorized the USA to ship supplies, food and oil, but also warships and warplanes, to the British and other allied nations, it seemed like the country had finally picked a side. We are pledged to give all-out aid to Britain, read a story in a May 8, 1941 issue of the Watauga Democrat, which had arrived in R.G.'s mailbox that morning. The people favor our stand as the arsenal of democracy. We must take any steps necessary. Drying her hands, Agnes went into the living room, switched off the radio, and went to go call R.G. in to eat. As she stepped out on the porch, she could just make out his silhouette along the fence line by the Herefords. He was holding up his lantern, tossing light back and forth over the animals. R.G.'s face was illuminated as he lifted the lantern to inspect them. The animals' white faces and curved horns glowing in the dark gave them the appearance of mythical creatures. As for R.G., he looked almost gentle, hoisting his light, speaking softly to each animal in turn. She could see in moments like this the veterinarian he'd always wanted to be, a ghost version of himself from another life. He was still young, and he still had time to complete a doctoral degree, but a part of her knew that dream of his might never happen. Even his master's degree and his job as a county agent had begun to seem like a diversion, a detour. She knew what his uncle Houston had known long ago, why the man had left his nephew this land in the first place. R.G.'s home was here, always had been. Agnes gripped the worn wooden railing of the porch. There was still so much she was figuring out in her life, but the notion that some fighting going on overseas would make its way here to this cattle farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains, seemed, to her, impossible. If Otago was its own world, let it stay that way. <laughs>